Hey, welcome back to Moment with Miranda. Thank you for sticking with me today and coming back for the second part of today's moment, or perhaps if you're jumping in for the first time with me right now. This is a moment where we have been talking about issues, and not just the issues that we all have that we each encounter in our own lives, but literally the issue or the flow of our lives. There is a place where the issues of our life find their source or what they issue from. The simplicity, I think, of what I'm talking about today is really just the place of our believing. If there is anything that society, by and large, is becoming more and more aware of these days is that we generally do not just act the way we do because we can't help it. At the core of every behavior really is a belief. And what you and I believe will influence our behavior, whether we want it to or not. This is just basic human nature. If I believe that I deserve something bad because I am bad, then I will live a life constantly looking to and experiencing what I think I deserve. Similarly, if I think I deserve good because I am good and what's not to love about me, well, then I live in the expectation of receiving that, even though I may not always experience good in every situation. I could also believe that if God is a God of judgment and he's angry, and he's a God of wrath, then everything that I experience or see in the world that I deem to be unjust or unfair will reinforce this belief, and I will either live in fear of that God or hating that God or thinking that that God is just an angry ogre that's constantly out to give the world what it deserves. And conversely, if I believe that God is good and that he is loving and that he's merciful, even if what I experience is not something that I would have chosen or desired for myself, I can still live in peace and assurance that he has me, even if it seems like nothing else is secure. Belief directly affects our behavior. So the question is today and probably every single day of our lives, what or who is the source of our believing? Now, this is something that I've been walking through and I think will continue to walk through all of the days of my life. And when I was younger and growing up in church, I really thought that what I did and how I acted determined what I would get from God. You know, you were to be a good Christian girl. If I did everything I was supposed to do, if I read my Bible and went to church and I sacrificed and I obeyed, then God would be pleased with me and I would prove that he could use me to accomplish something great for him. In my mind, there always had to be some kind of a great thing that I was destined and designed to do for God. So in my mind and how I processed things, I really thought that that meant, well, God's going to give me this worldwide ministry or a well-known name. And 
to be honest, I didn't live desiring to build his kingdom at all. I was living to build my own kingdom just in his name, basically on his coattails. And I know that that sounds so prideful. And what I can say out of a pure heart is that I didn't realize that that really was what I believed. But when all of the pretense was stripped away, that's what it was all about. It was about me having a name in God's name. And I've had to ask myself, why did I desire that? Why did I want a name or why did I want a ministry? And the answer that I came to for myself was because at the core of my believing, that's what I thought would make me more special and more valuable to God. I thought that if I performed well and perfectly, that God would see me, that God would love me more and I would get an A plus and, and be the best. If I had a ministry, I was more important than the quote average Joe. And I wanted to be special. I wanted to be important. I wanted to be noticed. And I thought that I had to do something for that to be the case because it wasn't just happening on its own naturally. So you can imagine what that belief led me to. It led me to a whole lot of work. <laughs> it led me to the work out your own soul salvation with fear and trembling. And what that meant for me was it meant more sacrifice and always more obedience and always another place to be disciplined, another place to see that I was coming up short. And it led me to more striving and it led me to more proving. And I could never prove myself enough. There was always, always something lacking. There was always something more to see. There was always this thing in me that was never enough. And this belief not only led me to see my own lack in this kind of push to prove, but it also led me to jealousy. So that when I didn't get what I thought I deserved, especially when what I was told, if I was willing to put it all on the line for, I would get. I was envious of others who didn't put in the time and the effort that I did. And yet it seemed that they were admired and they were loved and they were getting the things that I so desired and wanted to get more than me. And when I think about just the reality of all of that, I can really hang my head. But I find myself in these days hanging my head more in a godly sorrow than really in a humiliation. Because now when I think of all the years that I spent chasing God's pleasure and proving myself worthy of God's love, I, I get saddened. But it was what I believed that I had to do. So really that belief became the flow of my life, the source of the flow, the issue, the place where the outpouring of my life issued from. 
And in the end, I ended up with issues, with conditions. I had an issue of the a jealous spirit. I had an issue of the heart, a self-righteous attitude of an improper heart motivation. And physically, I had a body that was worn and spent literally to the bone from pressure that I put on myself all in the name of serving God and for the sake of the ministry. What it really comes down to is that I was believing in myself and that was never and it could never be enough. And what I find to be one of the most challenging and revealing aspects of what I just shared is that fact that there is a little truth in everything that I pursued as being the will of God. As you and I embrace the will of God from a transformed life and a transformed heart, there will be sacrifice. There will be these places where we come into obedience. There will be times of discipline or times when you work really, really hard for very little pay, so to speak. There will be times when other people move ahead of us or they seem to be appreciated or seen more. There will be times when there's a voluntary giving up of what I am entitled to so that other people can thrive. I mean, really, this is the gospel. This is the mind of Christ that he operated from. When the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians, he said, let this same mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And that mind was a mind that willingly submitted and poured himself out for other people, to God, for other people. And this is how Jesus operated. But notice the where all of those things found their source and issued from. All of the things that I spoke about, about sacrifice and obedience and discipline, they all issued from a transformed life and a transformed heart. Because as we embrace the will of God, it's out of that transformed place that I can actually do the things that look like Jesus. And in my effort to prove and to strive, I put all of the focus on myself. I was trusting in myself and I left out the main source, himself, Christ alone. And I wish that I had been more wise and yet I can see that I fell into the same trap that the very first human beings fell into. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I fell into the trap of the half-truth and the subtle deception of self-dependence. So you can remember how that story went down. You know, the serpent said to Eve, did God say, did God say, he came to attack the word of that God had given and really Really, in attacking the word of God, he was attacking, attacking God himself because God's word and God's nature, they cannot be separated. They're one and they are congruent with one another. So the challenge that the serpent brought to Eve and to Adam was against God himself. In man's ability to depend on him alone as their source. So we know that Eve lost focus 
from God. You know, we've been talking about shifting the focus so that we can change to a different place that our life issues from. So we know that Eva lost focus from God, where all of the issue of her life that she was living was flowing in perfection and in harmony. And suddenly she and Adam, they saw themselves and they saw that they were naked and they were no longer covered by the flow of the glory of God. And boy, did they get issues. And because they got issues, so did we. We all received the issue of sin and the issue of death. And we know that God is who he is, no matter who we are. That even when we're faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself and his nature. And it was always God's plan to make reconciliation for us. We see it immediately. He made a garment of skins to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. And it was always his plan to step up where we did not because, again, it's who he is. It's his nature. It's his plan to restore us back to himself and to his word, his standard that is forever settled in heaven. And I'm really moved when I think about this forever settled word. And I've really been thinking about it a lot just in the last week or so. Why is the word of God forever settled? I believe that it's because it's the source or the place of issue is God who is forever settled. The source or the place of issue is the God who is forever settled. You cannot pour out what you are not. And the fruit of your life will bear evidence of who you really are and how you really operate, what you really believe. We see in the book of James that he talks about the power of the tongue and of our speech. And he says that this little tongue, these words that come out of our mouth, they create this world of iniquity. That they can defile our whole body and the tongue is just this untamable member. It is a deadly poison. By it, we can bless God and we can curse our brothers, which are made in God's own image. And he says, how can we speak well of God and not well of those he made? Can bitter and sweet waters flow from the same spring? Can a fountain yield salt water and fresh water? He says that the unwise and the self-deceived person will produce envy and strife with their words. There will be confusion and there will be every evil work. But the man who is wise, the man whose source is the source of wisdom that is from above, this man will be full of peace. His words will be of purity gentleness, mercy. They won't show favoritism. They'll be genuine. And the fruits of a man who has found his source of wisdom in God, the fruits of his life will be righteousness because he has sown words in peace. He has sown his own nature because he himself has been made right. 
what I can see here, friends, is that God's word is settled and it's right and it's pure at all times because he himself is the source of his word. And that is who he is. He is settled. He is right. He is pure. The same God who is love is also just. The same God who is holy is also merciful. The same God who is pure is also un is also willing to meet us in the place of our dirt and to call us up out of it. He is not two different gods. He is the same. And every action that he does is a result of his nature and a result of really his goodness. He is not so high and lofty that he will not condescend so that by his grace, you and I cannot ascend to where he is. So that by his grace, we can take the place in the heavenlies that Jesus has prepared for any who will receive and believe on him as their life's source. And I am learning that I would rather depend on that kind of God than on myself and my own abilities to get to him. And that's really where he wants us to be. God did and God does meet us where we are. He could have chosen to send an angel to come down and to reconcile man, but he took on human flesh. He took on the form of the one who fell, Adam, so that you and I could take on his form and we could be conformed. We could be restored to the image of Jesus Christ, the firstborn among many brethren, so that we could be restored to the image of sons and daughters, the family of God. And even in becoming human, he could have come as a strong and an influential king. He could have come as one who was wielding this military might and this prowess, demanding subjection to his authority and to his position. But instead, he came as most of us are, without influence, without inheritance, without position or prestige, just an ordinary carpenter. A nobody that was desirable to the human eye. The scripture tells us that he had nothing that would make us desire him. And I find it interesting that that is how he came, so that he could identify with us in every single way, except he was sinless. And I find it interesting that after Jesus is baptized and is shown to be the Son of God, through the Spirit of God resting upon him and the voice of God issuing out of heaven, declaring him to be so, that immediately he is led by the Spirit that is now resting upon him into the wilderness or into the desert place to be tempted. And to me, this is so amazing because the first temptation happened in the garden and man was sent out from the garden of Eden and he was sent out basically into the wilderness of life. And Jesus, he experienced his temptations in the wilderness. Why? 
I believe it was again because God was meeting man where he was in order to redeem him back to where he was to be. Jesus, fully God and fully man, became like us, entered into our time and lives, and faced temptation just like each and every one of us does. He was a man that was acquainted with grief, and he knew and understood our sorrow. He was touched with our infirmities so that he could fully redeem us that were in the depths of sin and sickness. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see the story of the temptations of Christ. In each, in each one of these instances, there's one thing that is attacked, and it is the word of God, the source himself. And you know, this really proves to us that the enemy is not smart. We give, the, we give the devil way more credit than he is actually due. He doesn't have any new tricks. And this could really help us to be wise and, to, and discerning to know that if he attacked the word once, then he's going to attack it again. And he will continue to do that. If he attacked the word once in the garden and then he attacked the word again in the desert place, he's going to continue. So we can be ready for that attack against the word. Remember what I shared in the beginning about my own personal journey in knowing Christ? There was a bit of truth in everything that I gave myself and my effort to. But my focus was off because my focus was on myself. And it was on cross my fingers and hope to earn glory. But it was not Christ in me, my hope of glory. And this is what Satan did to Eve, and this is what he came at Jesus with. The very word of his father, and in essence, the very nature of his father. By questioning the word of God, he was really calling him a liar. The very thing that the devil himself was. But again, friends, Jesus was coming to redeem mankind. And he started by redeeming the word and holding the word forth as life. And so by proving himself to be blameless and harmless, the son of God. And he did that to show us what we were created to mirror. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, Paul tells us that we are to work out our own soul salvation with fear and with reverence. Fear and trembling. It's reverence and awe. Because God is bringing forth his will and our desire to do it in us. He said, do all things without murmuring or disputes so that you'll be found to be without fault, blameless and without harm. The sons of God in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation where we have been called to shine as lights, holding forth the word of truth. So Jesus shows us this. This is exactly what he did in the temptations. He was showing us how to hold forth the word of life to be the sons of God in the world. He was helping us to see this is what it looks like to be made in the image of God, to become one of the brothers and sisters of Jesus and to now begin to mirror his image. So the main assault of the enemy on Jesus in the wilderness was on his identity. 
He said, if you be the son of God, basically prove it. Do something. And the first temptation challenged really the source of life himself. He said, make these stones bread. The enemy was trying to make hunger or the senses that Jesus was experiencing, the driving issue, so that he would seek to alleviate that immediate issue. But friends, like so many things in our life, that wasn't the real issue. It, the real issue was, what is the source of life? Is it simply the temporal bread, like I need to get this now because I'm craving it, or was it more? Was it the senses of the moment, or was it the eternal truth of a settled word? What was going to be the source? And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds or issues from the mouth of God. As much as Jesus knew, I mean, he was a man, friends. He knew physically and by his senses that he was hungry and he needed food. He knew even greater that food was not the source of his life. It was the God who gives food. He could eat perfectly. He could have filled himself to capacity. And yet in an instant, the one who gives life could take it away. He recognized the source. So then he was tempted by the enemy with power in a worldly kingdom. Again, the senses were used. Worship me and I'll give you all of this. He was shown the kingdoms of the world. In other words, lose your focus on the real source from where your real life issues come, where your real life issues to live a pseudo life, one that is temporal glory and esteem. Maybe a name, maybe a ministry. But what did Jesus do? He used the word of God from the place of his source. He went back to the issue of the living word that gives life wherever it flows. And he said, get behind me, Satan, because it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. Two times Jesus used the word of God to answer the enemy, so it shouldn't be any surprise that the final assault was to do the same against Jesus. So now the enemy turns it and begins to use the word because he recognizes there's power in the word. And he says, throw yourself off of the temple and save yourself. After all, it is written. He will give his angels charge over you to keep you. They will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And I love Jesus's answer because he said, it is said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now this word tempt doesn't mean to entice with sin because the scripture clearly tells us God cannot even be tempted by sin. There is no enticement of sin, even an option before God. But what it means is that to put to proof God's character or God's power. In other words, it was no longer just about God's word, but now he was coming at who he was himself. All of the things that his character proclaimed that he was. And what I'm challenged to glean from this passage of scripture that I've read many times is that Jesus knew who he was. His identity and he knew who his source was, God alone. 
See friends, what I'm discovering is that most of the issues or the conditions, the symptoms of my life are assaults that have been sent to challenge these very things, identity and source. Had I known as a younger Christian that I was loved and that I was chosen and that I was valuable to God simply because he had given me life, I would have spent a lot less time trying to prove that I was worthy, to prove that God could use me. I would not have desired a platform for men's adoration because I would have been established in God's. I would have known that no amount of achievement or acknowledgement from people or position would have made me more lovely to God. The truth is, is just like Adam and Eve in the garden before sin, in Christ, I already was lovely to God. And if like the woman with the issue of blood and like Ezekiel with the vision of the temple, I would have shifted my focus to the source of life, Jesus, I would have experienced wholeness and peace, I think a whole lot sooner. I could have been walking in the path that I'm walking now even sooner. See, if our behavior is a result of our beliefs, then what I believe must be established in truth. It must be established in peace, in life, and joy. Otherwise, I'm never going to experience those things in my life. And I am going to find myself consistently living on this roller coaster of my sense and self-driven life issues. And those issues will only replicate themselves. Sensualness, being led by the senses, and selfishness. And those things can only bring forth the fruits of death. But my friends, in this moment today, you and I have been called to life. We have been called to live from a new source, a new flow, a new issue. It's the streams of the living water of God that flow from his very throne, from Jesus Christ to you and to me, those who have been redeemed by his atoning work in every place that he walked on the earth. He has brought us from death to life so that we can be those sons and daughters without rebuke in the middle of a crooked generation, holding out his word of life and mirroring his very nature. This is what you and I are called to, friends, and in Christ, in Christ alone, we can do it. By the power of his Holy Spirit working through us each and every day as we shift our focus and as we submit to him as our life source, not looking to man, not looking to our feelings, not looking to our efforts, but looking to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. There's a new issue. It's an issue of grace and it's an issue of life that flows from the throne of God. And everywhere that that river flows, it brings health, it brings healing, and there is an abundance of fish. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this moment in your word, for this moment in your house. Father, I thank you that your words are life. Where would we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. 
And I ask, Father, that you truly would help us to live as your sons and daughters, as those that live empowered by you as our source, our very wellspring of life. As we speak your words over our lives, that we see our lives transformed. As we speak your words of wisdom over other people, that their lives are transformed. Father, I thank you that this is the privilege that we have as your sons and daughters. And so I ask, Lord, that you would raise up a generation of believers who would know who they are in you, that you are the source and they are beloved sons and daughters of God. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's Moment with Miranda. Hope you enjoyed, and I hope that you'll join me again next time. God bless you.